Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, first in our Advent series. As many of you know, I do like Christmas. I, I'm a bit of a crazy Christmas person. I like the run-up to Christmas. Um, all the wonderful treats, even the British public, are generally a bit more cheery than usual around Christmas time. Um, but for me, if I'm very honest, the real reason is that every time we come to this time of year, we get to cast our minds onto the incarnation of Christ, that mystery of mysteries. And everything we do and we sing takes on extra meaning if we allow it to in our hearts and our minds. It's a hugely theological, theologically rich season. Um, we're going to look at some of these issues today. Let's just pray before we get into this. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word, for the glories it contains, for pointing us to your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that he would get the glory this morning, that you would use the words of my mouth, Father. Give us all ears to hear, Lord, what your Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. However, one thing we need to do is to make sure that we place things in their proper historical context. Now, many of you have heard me teach before. You know I love to delve into the sort of Jewish background to the Gospels, and this, I believe this gives us huge insight and meaning into some of the texts that we read in the New Testament. We are going to do that today. We're going to look at the, the basis of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah and how that ties in with Christmas. Now, Christmas is obviously a very rich season because of the Incarnation, I'm completely going to sidestep the whole debate that we find amongst Christians, should we celebrate Christmas, are there pagan rituals in Christmas, all these sorts of things. I, I'm, that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm really using Christmas as the incarnation. That's really what I'm focusing on when I say Christmas there. Um, obviously, the incarnation is the culmination of a huge prophetic messianic tradition that we find right back in the book of Genesis, weaving its way throughout the entire Old Testament, coming to that day when Christ came into this earth. The roots of Christmas are firmly planted in Jewish soil. You may have noticed also around this time of year, just last week I believe that it was, um, the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. Now Hanukkah is also a wonderful celebration, feast of dedication or the festival of lights as it's often called. They have candles and presents and donuts every day as they light those candles. It's a wonderful idea. We should, we should take that one. But for Christians, we generally don't have too much idea what Hanukkah is really about, unless we've done a little bit of research. Um, it's not a mandated feast in the Old Testament, so we never would have done a verse-by-verse -verse study from it if we've gone through Leviticus or anything like that. Also, the events of Hanukkah happened during what we call the intertestamental period, or as the, the misnomer, the, the 400 silent years, as we call them. So that's, again, another reason that kind of compounds our ignorance as we, as we look at this topic there's just no reason you know it's not in the bible we don't generally look at those 400 years in between we jump from the old testament to the new testament in our in our studies so it's a kind of missed era of history and i'm hoping that i can open it up a little bit for you today it's actually a very important period of history 
and something that we do see talked about in the Bible at many different times. Hanukkah's the Festival of Lights. If you know, you know they have a, a menorah, which is a, ca- a candelabra where they have nine uh, candles on it, and each day you light one of these candles and you kind of incrementally go up until you light all eight throughout the day. Now, obviously, that's Hanukkah. We know that Christmas is also light, is also a theme that sort of links these two holidays. You know, we have lights on our trees and all over the place. Going back to kind of the Victorians when they first put lights on their trees, you know, they did that because they were trying to represent the light of the world in the Christian culture. So all these things have a very similar theme to them as we're going to see as we get into this. But let's talk about the history of Hanukkah. The book of 1 and 2 Maccabees are where you'll find the history of Hanukkah. Now, most people, they are not in our Bible. They're not biblical books. So you'll find them in a Roman Catholic Bible. You'll find them in an Eastern Orthodox Bible. They are part of what we call the Apocrypha. So these are books that were written in between uh, the, the, the Testaments. They're, they're not considered Holy Scripture, but some of them are extremely interesting historically. The Book of 1 and 2 Maccabees are pretty much the only record we have of the, the kind of events that happened. We have some stuff from Josephus too. We'll quote a little bit of this. So it's 1 and 2 Maccabees. We have to go back to the year 333 BC. Alexander the Great had conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. You'll read about that in the book of Daniel. If you remember, he spread a sort of form of what they call Hellenization across the world. This means he wanted Greek thought, Greek culture, Greek philosophy, and also the Greek language to be the dominant uh, thing in his empire. And he was fairly lenient to the Jewish people at this time. Um, he, they, they did okay under Alexander the Great. They, you know, they had the scriptures translated into Greek and it became the kind of common language. Yet, at the same time, this sort of Torah-based worldview that the Israelites had at this time did clash with the worldview of ancient Greece um, as they came, came together in this sort of weird mix that you had over this empire of Alexander the Great. And obviously, if you know the story, um, if you've studied the book of Daniel and know this story, uh, Alexander the Great's empire was split to four different generals. They're really the two main ones were the T- uh, Ptolemy and Seleucid. These were the two empires that were north and south, and Israel was sandwiched right in the middle of them. Now, one of these Seleucid kings, a few generations later, year 175 BC, his name was Antiochus IV. He came to power. Antiochus IV. He was a cruel and evil tyrant. He, he took the name for himself, Antiochus Epiphanes. And the word epiphanies there means God manifest. So it was a claim to divinity, which was quite common for rulers in the ancient world. But this should grab our attention around this time now, because we are celebrating Emmanuel, which is God with us. Yet we're looking at someone who the Bible is going to make a type of a... We're going to see, I'll, I'll try and flesh this out for you a bit as we go through. It's, it's quite deep stuff. It's extremely uh, interesting as we get into it but we'll look at this as we go through. However, he was very cruel to the Jews, this man. Basically, he wanted to eradicate them as a people because he, he took Hellenization to its ultimate end. It was, it was his way and no other way, basically, in his empire. And the Jewish people were those one people who just wouldn't come away from the Torah and accept Greek culture in all, in all its uh, sort of um, <laughs> ups and downs as we see it. The Jews gave him the nickname Epimanes, Antiochus Epimanes, which means the mad one. It was a play on the word Epiphanes. It's kind of a little way that they nicknamed him. Under Antiochus, the Jews did not do well. Um, I'm going to go through a few scriptures now from, well, not scriptures, sorry, through texts from the Maccabees. 
I want you to read them with me because they're quite, they're quite long, but we've pro many of us have probably never read the book of 1 and 2 Maccabees, so I want us to get a feel for this history about what's happening because it is what leads us into the New Testament. And as I'm going to show you when we hit the New Testament, the language of the authors is dripping with Hanukkah and temple language that we're going to see all the time. So it's ex extremely interesting. I don't want to have to look behind every time. So if I start reading and it's not on the screen, can a couple of you in the front row just kind of nod at me weirdly and I'll, I'll check. This is 1 Maccabees. This was, um, let's read it. Antiochus now issued a decree that all nations in his empire should abandon their own customs and become one people. All the Gentiles and even many of the Israelites submitted to this decree. They adopted the official pagan religion, offered sacrifices to idols, and no longer observed the Sabbath. The king also sent messengers with a decree to Jerusalem and all the towns of Judea, ordering the people to follow customs that were foreign to the country. He ordered them not to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, wine offerings in the temple, and commanded them to treat Sabbaths and festivals as ordinary work days. They were even ordered to defile the temple and the holy things in it. They were commanded to build pagan altars, temples and shrines, and to sacrifice pigs and other unclean animals there. They were forbidden to circumcise their sons, were required to make themselves ritually unclean in every way they could. Listen, so that they would forget the law which the Lord had given through Moses and would disobey all his commands. The penalty for disobeying the king's decree was death. You can see what Antiochus had in mind here when he was giving these laws and these decrees. Now, one time when Antiochus was off fighting um, in Egypt, uh, the Jewish people in Israel, they heard a report that he had been killed. And they were obviously very happy about this, and they started to obviously celebrate their feasts and, and kind of rebel against his laws. However, the first report that they heard was in fact false. He hadn't been killed. And so when Antiochus heard this, he assumed that a revolt was starting. This is from 2 Maccabees. He said, when news of what had happened reached the king, he took it to mean that Judea was in revolt. And so raging inwardly, he left Egypt and took the city by storm. He commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to slay those who went into the houses. Then there was killing of young and old, destruction of boys, women and children, slaughter of virgins and infants. Within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and as many were sold into slavery and were slain. It's a dark period. Now the final straw for the Jewish people was when Antiochus defiled the temple sanctuary, the holy temple in Jerusalem. We read about this, I'm going to quote you from Josephus now, Antiquities of the Jews. Josephus was a historian who lived uh, in the first century. He was Jewish, but he actually ended up working for the Romans. He says, and when the king had built an idol upon God's altar, he slew a swine upon it, and so offered a sacrifice neither according to the law nor the Jewish religious worship in that country. He also compelled them to forsake the worship which, which they paid their own God and to adore those whom he took to be gods and made them build temples and raise altars in every city and village and offer swine upon them every day. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons and threatened to punish any that would have finished, uh, any that should be found to have transgressed this injunction. And we learn from the book of Maccabees that this all happened on the, this abomination of desolation, as they call it, defiling of the temple sanctuary, happened on the 25th of Kislev, which is Hanukkah now, 25th. Now, this was a dark time for Israel, as you can see. They had to fight for their very survival, as we're going to see. And I hope this significance is not lost on us. It's not the first time Israel had to fight for their survival. 
and it is not the last time in their history they had to fight for their survival. Yet, in many ways, it's always darkest before the dawn. And this is where we see the revolution begin, the Maccabean Revolt, as we call it. One of these cities that Antiochus sent his Greek troops, Syrian Greek forces to, to build altars and make sure that every little city was falling in line. They, as a test, they would go to these cities, they would call out the priests or the elders, and they would make them sacrifice to Zeus in front of all of their people. Thus, obviously, the idea, you get the leaders, you get the people, and, and, they, and then Antiochus has his way with Hellenization. He arrived in a little city called Modin. It's in central Israel. They built their altar, and they got the pigs, and they, they brought out the priests, and they wanted them to sacrifice on the altar. In this city was a man named Matthias. He had five sons. He was the high priest, pretty much, well, the ruling priest in this area. He was a faithful man of God. He would not compromise the word of God. He would not do that. He refused to do what the soldiers asked. And instead, at this moment, he turned on the soldiers, he killed them, he destroyed the pagan altar, and he cried out, follow me, all of you who are for God's law, and stand by the covenant. These were the words that inspired the Maccabean revolt. Matthias and his sons fled to the mountains, followed by all the faithful of Israel who were not willing to engage in uh, offering sacrifices to Zeus. A year later, Matthias died, and his son, Judah, took over the revolt. His name was Judah, and they called him Judah the Maccabee. Maccabee is the, the, the word that meant the hammer, because he was strong in battle. Judah the hammer, Judah Maccabee. And they ended up kind of having guerrilla warfare, basically, with the Syrian troops. Uh, they used their, their local knowledge of the landscape and the geography and the customs, and they would hide, um, and they were a menace to the, to the Syrians. They could not defeat them. Eventually, uh, Antiochus sent an army of 40,000 troops against the Maccabees, which outnumbers them just ridiculously. However, still, they, they were defeated. The, the Maccabees beat the 40,000 troops, and three years after the initial rebellion, on the 25th of Kislev Aden, three years to the day, the Maccabean revolt took, retook Jerusalem. They went about into Jerusalem. Judah and his, uh, his brothers, they were all priests, and they were dismayed when they came to the temple. The temple was desolate. There was dried pig's bug on the altar. There was weeds growing in the sanctuary. There was a statue of Zeus, of Zeus still there in the sanctuary. They weeped, they mourned, they repented. And they immediately, before they'd even finished off the, the fighting on the skirmishes on the outside of the city, they started rebuilding parts of the temple. They rebuilt a new lampstand and these sorts of things um, in very quick fashion. And they wanted to rededicate the temple. Now, according to Talmudic tradition, this is the later Jewish tradition, when they entered the temple, they found only one cruise of oil with the, with the stamp of the high priest on it that could be used to light the menorah. Yet they knew that the whole ceremony would take longer than that, and it would take them seven more days, eight days in total, to, um, to get more oil that was kosher. This is called the miracle of the oil. You've probably heard this part of Hanukkah. It's where they light the candlestick and the miracle, the, the oil that was supposed to last for one day, in fact, burnt for eight days. And many people say in the popular version of Hanukkah, that is why they have eight candlesticks. That, that is the eight-day festival. Now, in reality, that probably, probably didn't happen. We don't know, but it probably didn't happen. The only mention of the miracle of the oil we get is in a tractate in the Talmud, which is 500 years after the, after the facts. All the early historical documents, 1 and 2 Maccabees and Josephus, they make no mention of this miracle of oil. Okay, so it, it's kind of, it's the popular version. It's, the, it's like we do with Christmas, you know, you take out all the religious significance and it's just the fun, the, commer 
commercial version. It's a bit like that, but not, not quite like that. So why eight days? The real answer is much more biblically significant for us. You find it in the book of 2 Maccabees. It says this, The sanctuary was purified on the 25th of Kislev, the same day when, of the same month as that on which foreigners had profaned it. The joyful celebration lasted for eight days, like the Feast of Tabernacles. Just note that. And then they recalled how only a short time before they had kept the feast while living like wild animals in the mountains and caves. So carrying garlanded wands and flowering branches as well as palm, palm fronds, they chanted hymns to the one who so triumphantly achieved the purification of his own temple. This is very significant. It tells us that Hanukkah was in fact a belated celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Booths, as we see in the New Testament, which is one of the mandated feasts of the Old Testament. It's probably one of the most important feasts that we find in the Old Testament. It was much more likely than the, the miracle of the oil, so to speak, that it was celebrated for eight days because, like it says here, they weren't able to celebrate tabernacles properly because at that point they were bandits kind of hiding out in, in the hills. Not bandits, but they, they were kind of you know, escaping from the, from the forces of Antiochus, hiding out in the hills. So now that they've rededicated Jerusalem, they want to celebrate that properly. And that's really the origins of Hanukkah. And there's biblical precedent for this. You remember when Solomon dedicated his temple? It was at the Feast of, Sukkot, Feast of Booths that he did that. You remember when they came back to rebuild the temple under Ezra? They celebrated a late Feast of Sukkot at that time too. So there's, there's biblical precedent. It's much more likely this is what the Matthias, uh, Judah and the priests were thinking in their head when they, did, when they instituted Hanukkah at this time. So you have this connection between Hanukkah and the Feast of Tabernacles. And both of them are associated with the temple. That's extremely important. Because when we come to look at Jesus Christ, the time that he chooses to reveal himself to the people of Israel, it is at the feast, it's, it's the same period in history. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. This is the history of Hanukkah. Now we might be thinking it's a, maybe just a sort of historical curiosity of Jewish history, but like I said, we're only just getting started. These events were in fact foretold in the Bible. In the book of Daniel, as I mentioned earlier, we have the whole career of Alexander the Great laid out in prophetic detail. We have the splitting up of his, of his empire. And we also have the rising of Antiochus out of the Seleucid Empire prophesied in the book of Daniel in quite a lot of detail. Not only that, it also tells us that Daniel will, um, Antiochus would be the one to sacrifice or commit what they call the abomination of desolations. That's sacrifice in the Holy, in the holy of Holies in the temple. It says in Daniel 11.31, speaking of Antiochus, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So this was exactly what Antiochus did. He stopped all their festivals, their feasts, and he set up this sacrifice to pig on the altar and he set up a statue of Zeus in God's Holy of Holies. Now if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you'll know that book of Daniel uses this man Antiochus, this period of history, as a way to teach us about a future period of history. Okay, if you, if you follow me with that, so that he, the book of Daniel uses the man Antiochus that we've seen in Greek history here, and these things that he did, as a way to teach us what will happen in the future. And it teaches us that there will, there will be a future man who will come in the character of Antiochus and will do very similar themes. 
It's this Hebraic concept of, of prophecy being a thematic recapitulation. Themes played out through the Bible leading to one ultimate fulfillment. Antiochus is key in this, and the things that he did are absolutely key. And this is not just, you know, I'm not just saying this, Jesus says this. You might remember in Matthew 24, one of Jesus' main teachings, this, this teaching that he gives when he's teaching about the end times. He says, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, this is, again, referring back to Antiochus, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and he goes on and on, and then there will be a great tribulation. This was referring to that time in the future. So Jesus takes the event in the past, and he says, use this as the model to understand what's going to happen in the future. And we see this all throughout the Bible. You see, the events of Hanukkah and Antiochus are a type of this end-time ruler who will come, and if you, know, you read about him in the book of Revelation, this is very near the end to the return of Christ. So I just want us to be very careful before we dismiss the 400 silent years, as we call them in the Christian tradition, as being separate from the Bible. They are integral. God was working through that time, allowing his, you know, this, this sort of stuff to take place, and that's why we have these teachings in the New Testament. But yet on a more sort of application from this, there's much we can learn. You remember, much what we see in the Old Testament with Israel is an example for us. We see it, it played out in the physical, but it's often representative of, of some spiritual realities that are going on behind there. You see, the Maccabean Rebellion is about the preservation of God's people. It's about resisting the urge to compromise with the culture, not to assimilate and adopt the ways and the customs of the people, and ultimately about the triumph of light over darkness. Hellenism was the fashion. Now, in Greek, this was very, very you know, hard to resist, Hellenization. Lavish entertainment programs put on by the government. The whole of Greek philosophy, um, Greek sexuality, Greek sexual debauchery, wrestling, the Olympic Games. Olympic Games were nude wrestling, basically. They worshipped the body in that sense, if you, if you know. And in between this, you had this little nation of Israel, this little Torah, Torah, little nation of Israel that was supposed to be a light to the nations that had been given the word of God. And they were sandwiched in between these two Greek empires that were pushing these sorts of things on them. And for the most part, they did not want to be involved in it. But there were those among them, among the Israelites, that did compromise. They began to hate the old ways of the Torah. They considered that to be backwards. Last century, you need to get with the times and come into the new Greek empire. One particular Jewish custom was singled out above all else for hatred and scorn, and that was circumcision. The Greeks considered it an abomination because they worshipped the body in that sense. You couldn't defile the body like that. And this obviously meant that the Jewish people, could, even if they wanted to assimilate, they could never take part in the games because they couldn't be nude. And, you know, it just didn't, just didn't work like that. This is very interesting. I just find this hugely significant. You see, because we know what is circumcision. What was the reason for circumcision? Remember right back in the book of Genesis, it was a sign of the covenant. Circumcision was to be a sign of the covenant, of your faithfulness to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what it was. So it makes no mistake that it was circumcision that was keeping these people from being properly assimilated into the Greek ways that Antiochus was pushing on them, that are really symbolic of the forces of darkness at this time. Now for us, the New Testament teaches that we are also circumcised, but it calls it a circumcision of the heart. And it's talking about our faith. That's what a circumcision of the heart is, a heart that is given to the Lord in faith. And this is, the real, this is what I want you to understand. This is the real battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. 
The culture will want you to assimilate. It will want you to enjoy its fruits, maybe under the guise of sports or entertainment, sophistication, knowledge, whatever it may be, but what it really wants is your faith. It wants to stop that circumcision taking place in your heart. Now, where will all of this lead, ultimately? It will lead to someone like Antiochus. It will lead to the word of God being banned. It will lead to festivals being banned, circumcision being banned, the desecration of the temple, ultimately outright persecution and death. History proves this. This is where it goes. Now, this is a lesson for us today. In the early stages, it might be very easy to coast along with this assimilation, with this compromise in reality. We can try and enjoy both worlds. It might be easy. It might not even appear like there's a conflict in the early stages. It didn't really, when Alexander was doing it, he still allowed the, people to, the Jewish people to get on with what they wanted to do and have their freedom. But slowly but surely, as more and more of them came over to Antiochus' way of thinking, to accepting the Greek culture being overlaid onto them, then things changed. And then it was, oh, all of a sudden, actually, don't do that festival anymore. All of a sudden, oh, we're actually, we're banning Torah reading in places. You're not allowed to have Jewish funerals. And this is how it happened, slowly, slowly, slowly. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you've got Zeus in the Holy of Holies. This is how it's always been. Now, we can try and coast along, like I say, but sooner or later, an Antiochus will come. And when he comes, you will have to be very sure which side you take. Ultimately, it comes right back down to that circumcision, your faith, the word of God, that you live in obedience to the word of God. And is that where your faith is placed? When an Antiochus comes on the scene, that will be a way, you know, there'll be no more cultural Christianity when that happens. However, Antiochus did misjudge the situation slightly. You see, he thought because he had the ruling class, the Jewish religious leaders and political establishment on his side, that that meant he had the entire Jewish population who would just follow along with whatever he said. He misjudged that. You see, what he didn't realize is that at this stage in, in the history, the ruling class, they did compromise, but they did it for power and various other things that he would give them. They were, they, the ruling class of Israel hated the common people of Israel at this time. They considered them backwards, like I said before, and they wanted to push their version of what they think the Israelites should be from the top down, and they did this with the support of Antiochus. Now, I could go off on some real political tangents right now about the whole concept of a ruling class despising the people and mandating what the people will say, think, and believe. I'm not going to, but I do want you to be aware that do not think that things that happen in this world are separate from a biblical worldview. You know, do not think that there is this sort of secular zone that is neutral in the middle. You live your faith over here and atheists are over there and everything that happens in the middle is here. That is not how it is. It is Antiochus and it is the children of Israel. It is light, it is darkness, it is Torah. It is, not, it is man's opinion or God's opinion. And all of these things play into that. This is what the lesson of the Maccabean Rebellion tells us. We need to understand the times. Now, the people at the time of the Maccabees, they were not happy with what their leaders were doing. One very interesting thing, Matthias, that priest in Modin who first killed the Syrian soldiers and started the revolt, what I didn't read to you was the part, the first people that he rebelled against were not the Greek soldiers. What happened is when the Greek soldiers were forcing them to try and do it, there were a number of, Greek, of Jewish priests that said, we'll sacrifice that pig on the altar, 
And they stepped up to do that, and it was them that Matthias first turned his sword upon. He first killed the compromising Jews before he turned on the Syrians. And what's the lesson for us? Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It's not, you know, what did Joshua say? Choose this day whom you will serve. This is another principle that I want you to understand. Now, who was it? Let's think about this in a bit more depth. Who was it who started this pushback against the forces of Antiochus? Matthias. They were not, they were not government soldiers. They was not the army. It was not the government. They were priests. Matthias and his family were priests. Now, the issue really was, would they or would they not be true to the word of God? Would they sacrifice to a false god? And they wouldn't. And that was how this started. Now again, many did. Many will today. Many do in the church today. Yet, God asks us today, will we be faithful to his word? You see, it was their determination not to be forced to forsake their identity and not to be forced to do anything that would inhibit the free practice of their religion. And they... And they that's what the whole Maccabean Rebellion was about. Now, where did it end? It ended in Jerusalem, at the temple. Everything always comes back to Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king. It's the city that's said to be at the center of the nations, and it's the city where God said he's placed his eternal name over that city. And one day when you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that it still ends in Jerusalem. These pictures that we see here just go through and through throughout the entire Bible. We find this in the New Testament. Second Thessalonians, I won't read the whole part. This is talking about the future Antiochus who will come. This is, so this is the Apostle Paul writing this. He says, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness, that's this man who will come in the character of Antiochus, the son of destruction, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Epiphanes, God manifests in the Antichrist, very literal sense of that term. And there's a lot more we could go into this. I'll leave that there for you for now. But obviously there are many Jews, they don't obviously go to the New Testament, you understand that. They, they kind of, Judaism today, would not believe that Jesus fulfills these things. So I'm going to go further than that. But Hanukkah to them is obviously about the survival of their people. It's so ingrained in Jewish culture and Jewish thought and Jewish identity that this is where they get the idea that it was better to die, to be killed, than it would be to have to sacrifice and go against the word of God. And the menorah symbolizes this. The menorah has been an ancient symbol of Israel for, for so many years. This, this famous picture, taken in 1932, just when the Nazis were rising to power. On the back of this picture were written the words, Death to Judea, Death to Judea so the flag says, Judea will live forever, so the light answers. I think that's just a wonderful text, especially when we look at it from our New Testament eyes, when we know that the light of the menorah symbolizes the light of Christ. The light of Hanukkah goes with Israel everywhere. 1944, Buchenwald concentration camp. Hanukkah is approaching. Prisoners are struggling to hang on to life in the bitter winter cold. Every day they're brought in to watch the guards eat their lunch and eat their sandwiches, or they're denied food and then they're sent to do a 12-hour day in the freezing cold with only their thin pyjamas to keep them warm. They have one bowl of watery soup per day. Covered in skin on their hands is falling off and becoming septic. 
Every morning they're forced to stand in the knee-high snow for morning roll call until their feet are frozen, and even those who had died the night before still had to be brought out and presented at roll call. One group of Jews decided that even in this darkness, they still needed to kindle the Hanukkah lights. They managed to steal a few drops of oil from manufacturing. They gave away their small bit of soup for lunch to, to, for a match from someone. And they made some wicks from a few clothing from their striped pajamas. And then one night, on the first night of Hanukkah, under their bunk using an old shoe polish tin, they kindled that Hanukkah light in their, in their dorm. And the inmates, lying on the floor, around this tiny little flame, sung the songs of Hanukkah and prayed. I just, I'm sharing you these stories. I want you to see how ingrained this is, because we, we don't have that, obviously. Most of us here as, as Gentiles, it's not a part of our history and our culture. Tehran, 1980. The, uh, if you remember, the American embassy was taken hostage at that time, the, the hostage crisis. There were six Jewish people who, who were taken hostage. One of the requests during the negotiations was that a rabbi would be allowed in because it was Hanukkah was approaching whilst this hostage crisis was going on. Strangely enough, the Iranian uh, terrorists who were holding them hostage actually did allow a rabbi to go in. And so there in this American embassy, surrounded by hostile Islamic terrorists, this rabbi kindled the Hanukkah light for them in 1980. And I saw this picture come up this year. Just, this was just a couple of week, weeks back when they were celebrating Hanukkah. That's the Brandenburg Gate. Many of you know that. That's where Hitler held many of his rallies. That's once where he declared that the Jewish population would cease to exist. Yet this year, in 2018, it was host to the largest menorah in the whole of Europe. Again, I find this very, very significant because we know that the menorah is a representation of the temple menorah, menorah which is a representation of Jesus Christ. This light is carried throughout the nations by the Jewish people because it was their purpose to be a light to the nations. You understand this. Now, yes, you might be thinking, but they don't follow Christ. I know that at this stage. I'm sharing this with us because I want us to understand when we come to the New Testament in the book of Romans where we hear Paul say, this apostle, this apostle to the Gentiles who was a Jew, when he says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, that he would wish himself accursed and cut off if only his people would believe. I want us to understand some of the depth of emotion that's going into statements like that. In Romans 11, when he says his heart's desire and prayer for his people is that they may know God. They have a knowledge of God, but not according, they have a zeal for God, sorry, but not according to knowledge. That's why the Apostle Paul says that one of the, the highest things that we should do is to take the gospel to the Jewish people. You see, whether it's the Greeks, the Nazis, the Mullahs, the light of Hanukkah still shines. Now let's turn to the New Testament and put a little bit of New Testament depth in this. John 8, Jesus, those famous words, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It was the Feast of Booths when this happened, when Christ made this declaration. Now remember I said, Hanukkah and Booths are the same festivals that are intimately connected. It was during the Feast of booths that Christ came to tell them that he was in fact the one who was fulfilling all of these light prophecies that we find throughout the Bible. Now this would have had immense impact because during the Feast of Sukkot at this time, as you can see, they had only one in the picture, but during in the temple courtyards they had four of those menorah, those huge candelabras. They were 75 feet high with a huge four different fire things in them. And this is a beautiful kind of physical illustration of what Israel was supposed to be. Remember in Isaiah 49, I will make you as a light to the nations. 
And here we have, remember, no electricity at this time. But it, it, you know, throughout this festival, these four things, Josephus records that the light was so bright from these festivals that it lit up the whole of, the, whole of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is sort of raised, if you know the topography there. You can imagine this, this, all the, the darkness around at nighttime, and then Israel, and then Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and there's just this light coming from the temple. Just what, a, what a picture that we have there. And it was this time that Jesus walks into the temple and he says, I am in fact the light of the world. Yeah, and this is what would have been in their heads at this time. Booths, and then we find it in John 9. He comes in again and he says this, I am the light of the world. And then in John chapter 10, we have Jesus celebrating the Feast of Hanukkah. Let's read this, John chapter 10, 22 to 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem and it was winter. Now the Feast of Dedication, that is Hanukkah. That is the Feast of Hanukkah. What we see here is Jesus going to celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish." and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, what's interesting is it most likely, in the temple colonnade here, there were many priests, Levitical priests, that were part of you know, listening to him give this statement. Some of them would have been Sadducees, the ruling class kind of in that sort of area at that time. Um, they had a kind of, there were Pharisees with a dominant party, but the Sadducees had a lot of the seats on the priesthood, so to speak. The Sadducees were descendants of a group called the Hasmoneans, who were descendants of the Maccabees. So eventually how, the, how it played out there. And this is the time of Hanukkah. So all of this history that I've shared with you would have just been in that, this is what's in their minds when Jesus is coming to them, and he says, I and the Father are one. And that word one would have, for any worshipper of the God of Israel, you would have thought back to Deuteronomy 6.5. The Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, the Maccabees used that as one of their rallying cries. That was, Macca you know, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. That was one of their war cries that would gather their troops together. So not only, you know, do you have this man walking into the temple during the, during the Feast of Booths, he says, I am, you know, I am the true light of the world. I am the true shepherd. He now also says, I am none other than one with God. I am claiming to be God the Father, one with him, so to speak. You see, it's during this season that Jesus presented himself as the one true God who is the light of the world. This is the history. This is the impact, and that's the, the thought process that's going into this passage of John, John's Gospel here. Now let's take this a little further and make a few Christmas connections with this. Remember at Christmas I said we're celebrating the Incarnation. Above all, that's basically what we're celebrating, isn't it? We call it the baby in the manger, but it's, it's so much more than that. All of this history is leading up to this event. It's one of the deepest mysteries of the New, Te New Testament. And one of the things you find talked about with the Incarnation is light. This is how it's described. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Very famous verse. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I and the Father are one. The Word was God. What does it say in verse 4? In him was life, and, li and that life was the light of men. Then it says, verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then verse 9, the true light, which gives light to every man, was coming into the world. And then we know, a little few verses down, we have that very famous verse, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So in, in the very passage that we have in John's Gospel, where he's talking about the incarnation, really the events we're celebrating at Christmas, he first describes it as light coming into the world. The light and the word. And then he uses this little word, tabernacled among us, or dwelt among us, it might say in your Bibles. That is a word that points us back to the temple. It's the word used whenever God came down at the tabernacle and at the temple. It points back to the purpose of those objects, which was to provide a place where God would come and dwell with his people in their midst. Now, what he's saying here, it's hugely significant. It's not the tabernacle that was once, it's not the temple now. Jesus is, in fact, saying what John is saying here and what Jesus is proclaiming when he comes into the temple, that he is now the temple. He is the light of the world. He is now that temple, and he is in their midst with them right now, which has always been the desire of God. He is the word become flesh. He is light sort of wrapped in human flesh. Makes me think of those words of the carol, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. It's hard to herald, isn't it, I believe? Hail the son of righteousness. And then it says, light of life. Light of life. You look at the carols. Look how often light comes into the theme of carols. His incarnation is the true dedication of the temple because he is the ultimate temple. It's no mistake that that's from John chapter 1. In John chapter 2, you have that little passage where he says, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they say, it took us 46 years to build this, but he was speaking to them about the temple of his body. It's right after in John 1 that he says, light, life, word, God, become flesh. He says, my body is the temple. All of it is pointing to Israel's Messiah. Isaiah 9, very famous Christmas card verse. This messianic redemption is also quoted. But we often quote 9 verse 6. I want to start at 9 verse 2, where it says this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, the light has shone upon them. And then we get down to 9 verse 6 and we find out how this light and how this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That is the fulfillment of the light. That is everything that the menorah from the temple pointed towards. It is the ultimate dedication and the ultimate temple that is being being, uh, talked about here. The fulfillment of the festival of lights and also of the Advent season is the incarnation. This is, this is where it all comes down to. Everything in history has been leading up to this moment at this point. There's more to come, obviously, but we know that story. Now, during Hanukkah, they kindle a menorah, one light at a time, so you start on the right and you work your way across. But what's interesting is they have this middle candlestick that is called a servant. It's called the servant candlestick, and that is the candle that you have to light all the other candles with. You can't just light the first candle. You have to light the servant candle, and the servant candle gives light to every other candle. Now, Messianic Jews would tell you that they have a beautiful spiritual picture of the Messiah in that candle. Because we know from the book of Isaiah that Messiah was prophesied to be a servant. Even Jesus says, I came not to serve, but to give, but not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. And he is the fulfillment of this. And he is the light of the world. And what did we read in John? He gives light to every man. You see the themes that are just all sort of coming into this one person, this one event, the incarnation here. 
And we see this again in the, in the nativity narrative. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2, when the parents bring him into the temple and there's that faithful man, Simeon, and he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And he's quoting Isaiah that we just read back there. Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. But then we can go a step further than this. Now that Christ has ascended to his Father, how does he bring his light into the world? It's still through a temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, speaking about the church? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You see, the word of the Holy Spirit indwells believers and it indwells the church and the Holy Spirit Tongues of fire, so to speak, is the light of the world now, in that sense. Obviously, Christ will always be the true light of the world, but he is with his Father now, waiting for that day until he returns. But now he has got us, his body, the body, that's why we're called the body of Christ, to finish his work. All of these things are connected. You remember in Romans, the famous verse where it says, I appeal, you know, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Now, that's temple language. There's no mistake that Paul is using these allusions to the temple and light and sacrifice that are so forefront in, the, in the, their culture, not in ours so much. But then it also says in verse 2, remember in Romans, do not be conformed to this world. Do not assimilate into the culture. It's, this is Maccabean language almost that he's using here, referring to that point in history. You must have a regular service of worship. Now for us, dedicating the temple is a matter of our heart. Will we allow idols into our own temple, into our own body? Will we put things like the priests did? Will we assimilate? Or will we be firm and live in obedience to the word of God, worthy of the calling to which he has called us? That is the calling. And that all comes back to the issue of are our hearts circumcised? Has the flesh been removed? And are we living a life in the power of the spirit? This is where it comes from. Matthew 5. What does Christ say to those living as his temple now? Notice, John 8, he said, I am the light of the world. Now that he's died and been resurrected and gone to be with his father, it's you are the light of the world in that sense. Obviously, this is Matthew. I understand the chronology is a bit different there, but this is the same point. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let me share with you a modern Hanukkah miracle. November 1917, the British government just issued the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was a declaration of the British government's intent to establish a national home for the Jewish people in Israel. And this really begun the setting of the stage for the restoration of Israel as we know it today. Until that time, the city of Jerusalem was in the hands of the Ottoman Caliphate. It had been for the last 400 years. These were the, this was the Ottoman Caliphate, the, rule, the ruling uh, very strong caliphate for many, many years. But they sided with the Nazis in World War I. World War II rather than with the Germans in World War I and they fought against the Allies. In December 1917 the city of Jerusalem was liberated from the Ottomans as their caliphate sort of crumbled and the story of how this happened is amazing really. There was a man named General Edmund Allenby. He'd been given explicit orders by the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George to recapture Jerusalem for Christmas and he, he even used the words make it a Christmas gift for the nation. Allenby was a devout Christian, he was a follower of the Bible, he was a soldier, but he, it said he never went anywhere without his Bible. And it's reported that the night before he was due to attack Jerusalem, 
Allenby prayed that he might take the city without damaging it and without destroying any of the holy places, because this was different to him. This was not just war, this was Jerusalem. He wired London for instructions, and someone sent him a scripture in reply. Isaiah 35, verse 5, and it says this, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it, and passing over, he will preserve it. Now, General Allenby was so excited by this verse, he read it aloud to all his troops as they prayed in the morning. And he got from this verse the idea, and he gathered up all these World War I biplanes, and he sent them over Jerusalem on the morning of December the 10th, over the Temple Mount, and they dropped flyers that said, surrender immediately, you don't have a prayer, Allenby. Now what was, he was unaware of is that there was a vague sort of prophecy in the Quran that the Turks believed at this time that said they would never lose the holy city until a man of Allah came to deliver it. And one of the things that just kind of providential events that happened is that when Allenby was translated crudely into Arabic and read from right to left, they interpreted that as being Allah-Nabi, which means son of Allah. And remember, the Turks had never seen planes. You know, pla the planes were new. You know, this was a fairly new war plane. So they had these weird things flying over the city, dropping. The Turks woke up to these leaflets from the heavens saying, surrender, son of, son of God, basically, son of Allah. They hoisted their white flag and they gave the city without one shot being fired. On 11th of December, 1917, General Allenby rides up on a white horse to the Jaffa Gate in the city of Jerusalem. And then he stopped, and he dismounted, and he entered the city on foot. And he did this for a very specific reason. Being a born-again believer, he said that he was unworthy to ride into the city of God on a white horse as a conqueror, because there is only one person who will, should have that honor, and that honor is reserved for Jesus Christ. And one day, he will ride into Jerusalem, according to Revelation 19, on a white horse. And he walked into Jerusalem on foot. Now, it didn't happen at Christmas. It happened on the first day of Hanukkah. At the exact same time that millions of people around that area of the world and all around the world would have been lighting their Hanukkah lights. Once again, the temple, Jerusalem, were the focus. And here we have this man who is being a sort of representing the light of Christ in that way by giving honor to Christ and not taking that honor that was due him. What a glorious way to reflect the light of Messiah. A few more minutes, bear with me. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 6. The final point I want to make from this verse. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, look, look at this term again, the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Notice that verse there, verse 6. Let the light shine out of darkness. That's a quote from Genesis 1 verse 3. Remember right back at the creation narrative. What does God say? Let there be light. That's before the sun. Let there be light. The Jew very interesting, the Jewish teaching, the Jewish background and tradition that I believe is probably in Paul's mind as he's making some application here. They, the Jewish people, called that light, it wasn't the sun, 
They called it the light of Messiah. When God said, let there be light, that was the light of Messiah. And it is taught in their tradition that that light shone for 36 hours up until Adam sinned. I don't know quite where the 36 hours comes from, but that, that is the tradition. Adam sinned after 36 hours in the garden. And then the light of Messiah was taken away. And the only way it could be revealed again was through the study of Torah. Now, we resonate with that in some ways, but we take it that step further, don't we, to the one that the Torah is pointing to in that sense. But the rabbis also connected the light of Messiah with Hanukkah. And they did this with those 36 hours. Because during Hanukkah, if you count, there are 36 times you will light those candles. And they made that connection. And therefore, in many ancient rabbinic traditions, the light of Hanukkah was actually referred to as the light of Messiah, strangely enough. You see, the tradition of lighting the Hanukkah lights was in fact lighting the light of Messiah, and it was said to foreshadow the ultimate coming of Messiah in his kingdom. Now, obviously, again, remember the Jews at this point looked to the end kingdom. They didn't understand the two kingdom, the two coming concept. But in Isaiah 60, we have that verse, don't we? The sun shall be no more. Your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Kind of, so he takes it right back to creation, and they take it right to the end of history, of, you know, into the, the eternal realms. It's the light of Messiah that starts, and it's the light of Messiah that finishes. Everything else in between is about getting us to acknowledge who Messiah is. You see, I believe this is what Tim Paul's minds when he says to these people now in this verse, the light of Messiah was present at creation. It's also this light of Messiah that is now being shone into your hearts, and it's ultimately the light of Messiah that will find its full expression in the face of Christ Jesus. And he is that one who will have his eternal kingdom where he will be the light, he will be ruling from Jerusalem, and there will be a new temple and he will be its light. You see how deep, you know, I know I've only scratched the surface with these things, but you see, we could mine these truths for many, many years to come, uh, praise the Lord, we will be. However, until then, and during Advent season, we are to let our lights shine brightly as we let him shine through us. It is really his light that we are looking to reflect. We are to declare his faithfulness to his covenant, to his people, to us, and his redemption to all of the earths. All of the earth. You see, our message truly is joy to the world. The Lord has come, and it's our mission to get the earth to receive her king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for these truths, Lord, and I know they've been deep, Father, and I pray that you would just help us to, to digest them and to understand them, Lord, and that they would impact our lives as the word of God just fills our hearts and our souls, Lord God, would we live it out. And I pray, Lord, that you would shine brightly through us. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us from assimilating, keep us from compromising with the culture for anything, Lord, that would make your light shine less in our lives. We pray that we would be a light to the nations, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit for this task. We pray now that you will be with us as we fellowship with one another and as we go out onto the streets uh, to sing about this light, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.